The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome Dr. Chuck Benbrook. Dr. Benbrook holds a Ph.D. in agricultural economics from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, an undergraduate degree from Harvard, and he has worked in Washington, D.C. on agriculture policy, science, and regulatory issues from 1979 through 1997, including agricultural staff expert on the Council for Environmental Quality, Executive Director of the Subcommittee on Department Operations, Research, and Foreign Agriculture for the U.S. House of Representatives, and the Executive Director, Board on Agriculture for the National Academy of Sciences. He is a former research professor at the Center for Sustaining Agriculture and Natural Resources at Washington State University, where he led a program entitled Measure to Manage Farm and Food Diagnostics for Sustainability and Health. Today, he is an independent researcher and consultant. He is a member of the USDA's AC21 Agricultural Biotechnology Advisory Committee, which we'll get into, and he has served as an expert witness in cases involving herbicide drift and damage and the labeling of food products containing genetically engineered ingredients. Welcome, Dr. Benbrook. Thank you, Melinda. Well, you've had a lot of research published lately that I want to dive into, but I think the first thing we should talk about is how did you become interested in genetically engineered food? Well, the path my professional career took drew me into pest management systems and pesticide use and the regulation of, of pesticides. And I've done a lot of analytical work on pesticide use and an approach to managing pests called integrated pest management. And starting in the mid-'90s, the seed and biotechnology and pesticide industries that had actually merged into one began to bring to market uh, genetically engineered crops that were tolerant of certain herbicides and, for the most part, a herbicide called glyphosate or Roundup. There's another common class of genetically engineered crops on the market today for corn and cotton that express a bacterial gene so that the plants produce their own Bacillus thuringiensis insecticide. These are the so-called insect-protected genetically engineered plants. So because the technology of genetic engineering was introduced in plants for the purpose of changing how weeds and insects are controlled, it was a natural evolution for me to conduct research on their performance, their safety, and environmental impacts. And that's kind of what I've been doing for the last almost 20 years now. It's interesting. I just happened to print off a precision ag-wired news release. This came from the Purdue University president, Mitch Daniels, and he was concerned about people who were, quote-unquote, attacking GMO technology, and he's calling those of us who have some questions about its safety, anti-science. How do you respond to that? Well, you know, I think it's very unfortunate. I don't know 
Dr. Daniels, but my guess he hasn't spent a lot of time reading the regulatory packages and, and detailed studies on the impact of genetic engineering on the nutritional quality of food, on how the plants respond to stress, their actual performance in the field. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of scientists in the U.S. that say they're convinced that uh, genetically engineered crops are the most thoroughly tested ever and perfectly safe, and that, that anyone raising concerns is, is anti-science. But the, the fact of the matter is that the vast majority of those people have never read a single study on the safety of genetically engineered crops, and they're, they're simply uh, taking the word of other scientists who have directly participated in research on the, the performance of the crops and, and their safety. So it's a very unfortunate and very anti-science conflict that is going on now, and, and I think it's really holding back the, the technology in that most of the argument is, is really not about the important impacts and implications of these foods. It, it's sort of a, a he said, she said kind of argument that, that really isn't grounded much in facts. Yeah, and I think it's so difficult for consumers to navigate that he said, she said science. But anytime I'm presented with an individual who says or accuses me of being anti-science because I raise question, I have to go back to the understanding of science as being really a method of inquiry. And when we stop asking questions, I think that's when we really get into trouble. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that's very clear from today's genetically engineered corn and, and soybeans and cotton is that the impacts and performance and, and really the public health consequences of these genetic engineering technologies have changed over time as a function of how widely the technologies are used, what kind of systems they're used within, and what other practices farmers have either taken or dropped from their system. For example, the big problem with the herbicide tolerant technology that's used on uh, about 160 million acres of U.S. farmland every year, about half of our cultivated cropland base, is that farmers came to use this one herbicide, Roundup, so exclusively that it triggered the evolution and then spread of literally dozens of glyphosate-resistant weeds. And as weeds became resistant to glyphosate, farmers had to increase the application rates, Many of them added a second or even third application into their system in, in the hope of keeping up with the weeds that were not as thoroughly controlled. And in recent years now, farmers have had to supplement glyphosate with other herbicides. So to say that because Roundup Ready soybeans and Roundup Ready cotton worked really well in the 1990s and most farmers got away with one application and the system worked very well, to say that, well, that proves that everything's fine is to close your eyes to what's happened in the last decade, which is this proliferation um, essentially all over the country of resistant weeds, about doubling of herbicide use on a per acre basis. And now farmers are, are really being forced to bring back some of the older, more toxic herbicides like 2,4-D and dicamba to control glyphosate-resistant weeds. So the impacts of the system in 2016 are 
substantially more serious and significant than they were 15 years ago. And to close one's mind to the fact that things are changing clearly is, is not good logic or good science. Absolutely. You know, I was at the American Dietetic Association meeting. Now it's called the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Just a year or two ago, where the biotech industry would really like for dietitians to support this technology. And so many of the exhibit booths and even presentations talk about this technology. And I remember one of the presenters saying that they planted genetically engineered soybeans because they used less herbicide. And I thought to myself, but that's not true. So again, we have another situation where there's he said, she said science. And in addition to the consumer, even the health professional doesn't really know what to run with. And yet you've got data from USDA showing clearly there's been an increase in the use of not only glyphosate, but as you mentioned, these additional herbicides to try to fight back these resistant weeds. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's the story is clearest in soybeans, and basically average per acre herbicide use measured by the pounds of active ingredient, which is the way that all the government agencies and scientists measure pesticide use. It's in terms of the active ingredient. So in the case of soybeans from 1996 to 2015, the average amount of herbicide sprayed per acre has just about doubled from around one pound to around two pounds. And the increase in glyphosate use has accounted for most of that increase. But now because there's so many resistant weeds, some farmers are actually not making a third application or a second application with glyphosate. And instead, they're bringing back and spraying some of the older herbicides including some that go on at a very low rate of application. Two of the major families of herbicide chemistry available to soybean, corn, and cotton farmers are applied at anywhere from two-tenths of a pound per acre down to one-one-hundredth of a pound per acre. So these are very biologically active herbicides. So when you replace one application of glyphosate at, say, three-quarters of a pound per acre, with another herbicide that goes on at a tenth of a pound per acre, it's clearly going to show a reduction in herbicide use. But in reality, it's not necessarily a reduction in sort of the, the total biologically active chemistry put on, on the crop field. It doesn't suggest that there's been a reduction in the weed pressure, for example, when herbicide use goes down in that way. So because farmers are changing their mix of herbicides on basically an annual basis in an attempt to keep up with the resistant weeds, it's going to be a very challenging task to to keep up with the consequences of all the changes. I would actually predict that overall herbicide use is going to start to go down because there will be a shift to these lower-dose herbicides and less second- and third applications made with glyphosate. I would say that the number of herbicide acre treatments, which is another important indicator of the intensity of herbicide use, will definitely go up. In much of the first decade of use of Roundup Ready technology, a majority of farmers got by with only one acre treatment with glyphosate and nothing else. But now most farmers are having to spray at least three different herbicides, and several are spraying five or even more 
and some of those more than once. So we've gone from a situation where there would be one or maybe two acre treatments, say in 2000, and in 2016, the average soybean field will have somewhere between three and four acre treatments. So that's clearly not movement in a positive direction. And it also substantially increases farmer cost of production because most of these herbicides that they're bringing into their system are actually more expensive than glyphosate on a per-acre treated basis. So you have a situation now where farmers are having to spend 40 or 50 or $60 per acre more on herbicides in addition to the high price of the genetically engineered seeds. And it, it's really taking a big chunk out of what traditionally was the farmer's share of their corn crop, of the sale price of their corn crop. And my research suggests that at least 30% of the historic return to the farmer from growing an acre of corn is now going to pay for the genetically engineered seeds and the additional pesticides that are required to bring the crop to harvest. And I think now that crop prices have come down from their historic highs in that 2007 to 2013 period, we're going to hear a lot of complaints from farmers that they can't cover their costs, and this technology is, is actually losing them money. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. Chuck Bembrook, agricultural economist and presently an independent researcher and consultant member of USDA's AC21 Agricultural Biotechnology Advisory Committee. You know, that brings us, Dr. Bembrook, to the excellent paper in which you are a co-author with some stellar referenced professionals, physicians, medical researchers, agricultural experts. And the title is Concerns Over the Use of Glyphosate-Based Herbicides and Risks Associated with Exposures, a Consensus Statement. It was published in Environmental Health, and I will make sure that we have a link connected with this interview because I think some of the conclusions are extremely important to get out to a much wider audience. For example, I don't think that people understand that it's not just the genetically engineered crops that are sprayed with this product, Roundup or glyphosate, the active ingredient. But you've got some data under where glyphosate residues are found in foods. So you mentioned the obvious, right? We would expect that if soybeans were sprayed, we would find residues. And in fact, over 90% of the soybean samples have been found to have residues. But then I read down and I find that late season harvest use of the glyphosate-based herbicides are also contributing to this residue that exists in our water and our air and our food. So you explain that grain-based food products, so it could be barley, it could be wheat, that these crops are sprayed just prior to harvest, which would explain why we are also seeing residues on foods that are not necessarily genetically engineered. That's right. It's very clear that there's been a substantial increase in dietary exposure to glyphosate across the EU and in North America because of this so-called green burndown or harvest aid use of glyphosate, especially in some relatively wet northern climates where farmers have a hard time getting their crops to dry sufficiently to allow harvest operations to begin. Harvest is often a, it's a race against the clock. They've, they've got to get the crops off the fields 
before the bad weather and the rains begin in the fall and early winter months. So what farmers started to do, and it actually began in Scotland in the early 1980s, is they'll spray a field of wheat when it's partially dried but still some of the plants are green and, and still growing. They'll spray glyphosate, which within a couple of days kills the plants and allows them then to, to dry sufficiently so that farmers can move their combines through the fields. But in this scenario, the grain, or say it's an edible bean field, for, uh, as another example, the beans or the, or the grain are um, have been sprayed like 10 days before harvest. Mm. Uh, so the residue label levels are very high compared to the more traditional early spring and planting time uses of most herbicides. So in the other paper that I published this February on trends in glyphosate use in the U.S. and globally, um, this paper came out on February 2nd in the journal Environmental Sciences Europe. There's a table in, in that paper that shows the increase in tolerance levels that Monsanto had to request from regulatory authorities around the world to cover these residues. And in some cases, the, you know, the, the tolerance levels went up uh, tenfold or fiftyfold to very high levels, uh, 50 parts per million or 100 parts per million. Pesticide levels that high are unprecedented in food. So these pre-harvest uses of glyphosate should definitely be stopped now. They really are of marginal economic return to the farmer and yet they contribute so heavily to new dietary exposure patterns that we really just don't know what the, the consequences might be. So this jump up in dietary exposures was one of the reasons that this international team of scientists decided that to, to try to draw attention uh, among public health officials, toxicologists, researchers, and regulators around the world that both the use and the exposures and what we know about the toxicity of glyphosate are all changing, and what we're learning certainly raise more serious concerns about what is the most heavily used pesticide in the history of the world. Uh, there is no pesticide that has come remotely close to the volume of use of glyphosate uh, in 2015. And you also provide a list of reasons why we should be concerned about the increased use. For the life of me, I can't figure out how or why governments would approve the use or the increased use of this herbicide in the ways that you describe. It's my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that the governmental agencies often depend on the industries that are profiting from the herbicide to do the research and, of course, they're going to say, yeah, it's fine. And then the government agencies approve it based on industry research. That, does, that seems like a conflict of interest to me. Well, it, it certainly is, but uh, that's the way our system works. Now, it's important to remember that the studies done by Monsanto and submitted to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to approve the uses of glyphosate were done in the 70s and early 80s. And they're very old studies. They were not terribly sophisticated. Glyphosate has never been put through a modern battery of developmental tests and epigenetic tests to get at potential genetic and cellular 
impacts consistent with other endocrine disruptors. The agencies have simply not required those sorts of studies to be done. Right. Uh, so this is why the, uh, our team decided to try to compile all the worrisome areas of research that suggest that uh, glyphosate may be posing a, a greater risk than what regulatory agencies around the world concluded and expected based on this, these fairly old studies that were done in the 70s and 80s. I mean, for example, glyphosate has been identified and hypothesized as an important cause of hundreds of thousands of cases of fatal chronic kidney disease among male farm workers in Asia and Central America and parts of South America. These clusters of serious and often fatal chronic kidney disease are occurring in areas with uh, hard drinking water where a lot of glyphosate is also used. Uh, hard drinking water is drinking water that has some minerals in it. And glyphosate acts as a chelating agent, which basically means it's chemically prone to binding to metals. And so the hypothesis is that among these male farm workers working in rice paddies, working in sugarcane, very in hot climates where people that work outside have to drink a lot of water during the day to stay hydrated, the glyphosate that they're being exposed to occupationally and through their diet and in drinking water is binding to the heavy metals in the water. And this alters the metabolism or the breakdown of glyphosate in the kidney. And, and sort of the glyphosate gets stuck in the kidney as opposed to being broken down and excreted in, in the individual's urine. And this starts a pathology going in the liver and kidney of, of affected individuals that some scientists believe are the primary cause of these very unusual clusters of fatal chronic kidney disease among otherwise healthy farm workers in their 30s and early 40s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I've also heard that glyphosate has been patented as an antibiotic. Is that correct? Correct. Of course, there's all sorts of different claims made about glyphosate in the extensive body of patents that cover it. But Glyphosate was initially patented as, as a chelating agent, and secondarily, its antibiotic activity is also featured in some of the early patents. So this has given rise to concern that glyphosate, human glyphosate exposures may be contributing in one way or another to changes in the human microbiome within an individual's GI tract, gastrointestinal tract, and stomach in ways that could be contributing to some of the digestive problems that are becoming more and more common in the U.S. population. Uh, this is an area of, of very active research. Mm -hmm. That's exactly where I was going with that question. I wondered about the connections, and yet we need more independent research to look at this, don't we? Well, we certainly do. Glyphosate had such an excellent reputation as a relatively benign herbicide, didn't have a lot of adverse effects on non-target organisms like birds and bees and fish and earthworms. And it also, because of the way it was used in the first 30 years of its history, it could only be applied before a crop germinated because otherwise it would kill the crop. It, it, glyphosate 
basically will kill any plant that is you know, has germinated and is actively growing. So for, because of that, glyphosate would only be used early in the season before a crop even germinated. So residues were extremely rare in the harvested corn or soybeans or cucumbers or wheat or whatever. And also for the first many years of use, it didn't show up very often in drinking water. So there actually was relatively little human exposure to glyphosate for the first 30 or so years of its use because of the way it had been used. But this has definitely changed in the last 10 years. One of the findings in my paper that came out in Environmental Sciences Europe, which even shocked me as someone that works with this data on a daily basis and has for, for many years, I point out in that paper that about two-thirds of the glyphosate that has been sprayed since it was introduced in 1974, so this is, this is over 41 years of, of use, about two-thirds of the total use has been applied in the last 10 years. Mm. And it's really only in the last 10 years that glyphosate has started to show up commonly in drinking water all over the country. It's in the air often in the spring. It's in a number of different foods. So today, millions and millions of people are being exposed to glyphosate and, and in the spring and early summer, uh, probably on almost a daily basis. And for this reason... We would just now expect to see the first signs of serious chronic health problems because most chronic diseases take 10 to 20 years to actually reach a point where an individual is diagnosed with, uh, say, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a cancer that is clearly implicated as uh, more likely when people are exposed to glyphosate. So given that there's been this huge mushrooming in use, and there's multiple exposure pathways today that didn't exist 10 or 20 years ago, we really feel that it's essential that regulators take a fresh look at this and do so with data that hasn't been generated by the registrants that, of course, have a huge financial interest in maintaining the current very lax regulatory treatment. But unfortunately, the U.S. government has invested very little public money in research on genetically engineered crops and their impacts. And glyphosate has only once been tested in a serious way for residues in food by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. That was the 2009 testing in 300 samples of soybeans. They haven't done any glyphosate testing since, although the FDA has recently announced they're going to start to test for glyphosate residues in a, a broader array of the food supply. So there's just a huge need for a targeted, high-priority research program that should be managed by the National Institute of Health and provide independent researchers with standard NIH competitive grants to conduct the kind of serious modern research that's possible today that, that wasn't possible in 1974. Well, Dr. Now, Benbrook, I'm going to have to cut us off here. And I would love to invite you back because I want to have you bring up the second piece of research that we wanted to look at, which was the benefit of foods grown without these chemicals. So if you would agree to be my guest again, I would love to have you back. 
Oh, for sure. Be glad to do that. All right. Well, in closing, I want to thank you. We've been speaking with Dr. Charles Bembrook, agricultural economist, independent researcher and consultant, member of the USDA's AC21 Agricultural Biotechnology Advisory Committee. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you again, Dr. Bembrook. Thank you. Thank you.